This podcast is supported by Red Energy. Powered by the mighty Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy, Red is 100% Australian-owned and local. Phone 131 806. I'm Jo Stanley, and for years I woke up at an ungodly hour to do breakfast radio. These days, though, my lack of sleep comes from being a mum. Like most parents, I'm just trying to get through the day without yelling at my kid and laugh crying in the middle of the shops. And if I can juggle my career and still get my daughter to eat broccoli every now and then, I'm awarding myself Mother of the Year. I mean, we're all different, but the parenting roller coaster is the same. Sharing our stories of the highs and the lows is so important because it's a lot easier to enjoy this crazy ride when we know we're all in this together. Welcome to Mum Plus One, thanks to Red Energy. Great value electricity and gas, that's Red Energy. We try to limit screen time in our house. I mean, every parent tries. Our rules, never before school, never at the dinner table, never on your own in your bedroom, only an hour after school and a bit more on weekends. But somehow that creeps up. I guess we get tired of the constant nagging and requests and bargaining and endless discussion about when our daughter can get back on the iPad. And look, it wears me down. Also, I'm too busy on my laptop and her father's busy with Twitter and let me just do this Insta post and yeah, I guess I'm not a very good role model. A lot of the time I wish I could turn back time to before social media, before portable devices, before I had to be the screen police all the time. And the amazing thing is some parents have. Some parents have performed the miracle of removing close to all screen use from their house. Melissa Bates is a mum of two who began a screen-free experiment two years ago. You can follow her family's progress on Facebook at The Screen Free Experiment. And she joins us now. Hi there, Melissa. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Take us back to two years ago. How would you describe the screen (laughs) use in your house? Okay, so, um, yeah, where are we? We're May. We, about, it was two years ago now that we were coming to a point with our son where we were at our wits' end <laughs> with behaviour. And uh, our screen use at that time, um, we watched a lot of passive, uh, well, we had a lot of passive screen time. So the telly was on a lot, you know, during breakfast and over the weekend. It wasn't something I considered to be a problem because that's how I kind of grew up, I suppose, just with that TV on in the background all of the time. Um, and the kids had some interactive screen time as well, so iPad use um, uh, on the weekend mostly, sometimes after school as well. And they had sort of up to two hours um, a day on a Saturday and a Sunday. And, um, and yeah, we thought that was fairly reasonable at the time. We thought that we felt that that was a, a, an okay amount. Um, but uh, little did we know that things were, were very different. <laughs> well, when you uh, speak about your son's behaviour, what does that mean? What were you observing? He was the sort of kid that, um, I mean, we, we had seen a psychologist and who said that she thought Mitch had Mitchell, his name's Mitchell, um, and he was seven at the time, had mild ADHD. Um, but it didn't really, that sort of didn't really fit in with what we were experiencing with him. You know, he was having meltdowns uh, frequently over seemingly tiny things, a lot of problems with executive functioning, um, you know, a lot of high, really big reactions over small things. And, you know, these are things that 
that these are skills that kids have to learn. But for Mitch, it didn't seem to be happening. It was just getting worse. And the aggression, some of uh, the aggression was a really big concern for us because this is a seven year old kid who, you know, you know, he'd ask, ask him to hop off the iPad or, or even small things, just like asking him to put his shoes on. And you could see he was so overwhelmed and anxious and upset and he would have these huge outbursts. And they weren't getting better, even with the behavioural therapy and, and some of the other things that we were trying. It just wasn't helping. It was getting worse. So we were really at our wits' end as to, to how to help him. So why did you decide that removing screens from your house was the answer? We came across a, a book written by a, a psychiatrist in the US um, and it's called the Reset Your Child's Brain. And um, a lot of the information in a lot of the things that um, that this particular doctor was describing, she she calls it electronic screen syndrome. So a lot of the things that she described in her book really, um, really described Mitchell to a T and even more so than an ADHD diagnosis. There were some really, really obvious things from an ADHD that Mitch didn't have. Um, and he seemed to really fit this model of electronic screen, screen syndrome. Um, so we, we read the book and we really didn't have anything else to lose. You know, we were at a point where we didn't know, we didn't know what else to do. And we we're thinking, well, what is the next step? Are we going to look at medication and those sorts of things to help him? Um, and we thought this is free. Um, it, it, it's going to be really, really hard, but it's free. It's going to take effort, but we, we felt like we really just needed to give it a try. And that's why we, we called it an experiment just to something to get to try to see if it would help him and we were amazed really at the results. I did scroll all the way back to two years ago mm. <laughs> and you yeah. outlined what you went from and all the devices that you had and what you went to. Can you give us a description? I would describe my husband as a techie so we've always been very up to date with the devices in our household. We had a couple of iPads, we had an old Xbox, we had a Nintendo DS we had a couple of big flat screen TVs, laptops, all of the devices, iPhones as well. So I had an iPhone. My husband has an iPhone. The kids had limited access to the to some of those devices, you know. And we we tried to set strict screen time limits as far as we could tell that they were strict. Um, but yeah, that's what they had access to at the time. And we went from that to absolutely nothing. And, and a lot of those devices are still in a bag in our in our walk in wardrobe. That and and. Um, it's changed the last couple of months. We did get the the iPad Pro out um, <laughs> to help with uh, remote learning um, when this uh, COVID nineteen sort of changed the way the kids learnt. But um, but at the time that we did our four week fast, we even communicated with the school um, about the screen time usage at school, and the the teacher was really helpful. And and you know when the, when the other children were doing um, reading eggs or mathletics or whatever it was on the iPads in the classroom. Um, Mitchell, because Mitch was only was the only one at school at the time, would would do reading instead. So it was a really complete fast over that four week period. Yeah. Wow. So you do allude to this notion of setting screen time limits, and I think all parents think that that we're fairly strict, but you, I suppose, realised that you weren't strict enough. I think every kid's different, and and I think you know for some kids are more sensitive than others to the effects of screen time. We have two kids, two very different kids. Mitchell is very sensitive to screen time. Alexandra, not so much, but we have the same, you know, it's not fair to have different limits for different kids. Um, 
I think yes, we. I don't think we were strict enough. You know, I, I, given the information that we had at the time, but I don't think had we just gone from, um, you know, if we just reduced the limit, we w- we wouldn't have seen the same results. We really needed to give Mitchell's brain a chance to get out of that really that really you know get out of his um, flight and fight response, which he was constantly in because of the screen exposure. Um, he needed to have that that real break from the screens for us to, and then then we could slowly reintroduce the screen time. Um, and as soon as we see, even now, as soon as we see him starting to feel worked up, or if we start to notice some of those behaviours returning, we we re we reassess what our limits are. And he doesn't have a lot of screen time. He's got a very low tolerance um, for screens, which is what we've discovered. Yeah. Can you explain a little what your understanding about the fight or flight response that you uh, say a child's brain is in when they're on the screen? There's lots of different ways that screen time interacts with our bodies. One of the biggest ways is through our eyes and, and into our brain. Really, our eyes aren't designed and our brain isn't designed to have so much stimulation from screens. Um, this is my understanding. I'm by no means an, an expert, but this is sure. what my understanding is from the research and what I've observed in my children and particularly with, with video games like uh, Fortnite, games that put the player in a really heightened sense. You know, our brain can't decipher between what is actually happening or what is reality and what they're seeing in the screen. And so our bodies have the same physiological reactions and, and our brain to what is going through our eyes, um, whether it's real or not. And so if Mitchell was playing a game where he was shooting zombies or... Um, something like that where he was at it, being attacked, his body, you could see it in his body and in his eyes that he was having a physiological reaction to to those to that stimulation. So that was putting him in that flight or fight position all of the time, you know, a lot of the time. Mm. And so when we took it away from him, it was really difficult for him to switch that off. And I think that's a lot of a lot of what you see in kids when they have these huge meltdowns, parents say, oh, you, you can't react like that when I take the screen away from you. But we, we really need to understand from their point of view, they have a, having a physiological, emotional reaction to what they're experiencing in front of the TV or in front of that screen. And um, it's really, really hard for them to come down from that level. So what was the reaction when you first did that fast? And how long did it take for your kids to <laughs> adjust? <laughs> uh. Um, so there was, it started off really great and, you know, I, I first child, bit of first child syndrome here and high achiever syndrome, I thought I was on top of the world and I was doing all these great and wonderful things and, you know, my kids were doing great. It took about a week for us to have a crash. <laughs> so about, about a week after we took everything away, we had this huge crash with both of the kids and how they were feeling because, um, you know, as you can imagine with all of that stimulation, it is like a drug. It, it keeps them, keeps them, you know, the serotonin levels really high. So they had this really big crash after about a week. Um, and after about two weeks, we started to see some, some improvements um, in their ability to concentrate, in their ability to use their imagination, um, to be able to start to entertain themselves a little bit rather than relying on me all of the time or relying on a screen to stimulate them all of the time. And you know, after that four-week period, it was was like being with a different kid. They would go into their room and play Lego or read a book, and we all felt calmer. My husband and, and I as well, and more able to engage with them and interact with them. It, it had an effect on all of us, and those benefits continued for months afterwards. It wasn't really until 
probably eight months after the initial screen fast that we allowed a little bit of gaming. It was a little bit of Roblox at the time, non-violent games. Um, and, you know, we're still very, very low screen use um, apart from what they have to do at school. We just continued to see the benefits for months and months afterwards. Well, Melissa, it is very inspirational. I know that you're not about judging other families and that everybody does it their own way. But have you got one piece of advice for those of us who would like to reduce the screen use in our house and our families as much as possible? Part of the reason that I called it an experiment is do this experiment with your family. Frame it in that way with your kids and give it a try because you just don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and this is the thing with all of the, with kids that have grown up with these devices and with these screens and with this constant stimulation. And we just discovered a whole new way of living with our family. So it is daunting. It is scary. You need to plan it, you know, make sure that everybody's on board and that you've got some really cool things, exciting things to do together planned, but just give it a go. I'm certain, <laughs> certain that you'll, that you'll find benefits just as we have. Thank you so much, Melissa. I really have been inspired and I'm going to try to be, well, more willing to say no <laughs> to my kid because um, I yeah. think, yeah, I think it, it's, it comes down to our own strength perhaps in around that. Yeah, I always say, you know, parenting is the biggest personal growth journey that any of us can go on. It's been a real, real journey for all of us. I'm just very grateful to be able to chat to you about it. It's fantastic. You're listening to Mum Plus One with me, Joe Stanley, and thanks to Red Energy for making this podcast possible. Red Energy has great value electricity and gas that goes beyond price. Call 131 806 today. Well, it turns out stepping into limit screen time isn't just about encouraging all the awesome things kids can do with their time when they're not on the screen, like free play, reading, art, music, hanging with their family, even cleaning their room. David Gillespie is a father of six and author of the extensively researched book, Teen Brain, and he has bad news for us. Leaving our kids to their own devices on their devices is flicking a switch to addiction. David, I really enjoyed your book, although it terrified me quite a lot um, and also made me feel like an epic failure. Uh, I'm sure that's not your intention. No, it never is. It's always the intention to um, understand the why. I, I think it's always, it's it's very hard to understand when t- somebody just tells us to do something. Uh, I always need to understand why. Uh, and uh, that book is me trying to understand why. And then when I think I've understood it, um, writing it down. Well, I'm grateful that you did because I learned a lot. David, all parents know we're supposed to limit screen time is there absolutely no safe level of screen usage? Uh, it's not about screen time. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with a screen. Uh, what's wrong with it is some of the things that are on those screens. Uh, so it is that there are a very, very small percentage of, of apps and, and software written explicitly to take advantage of the human reward pathway and create addiction. Uh, And those apps are almost universally free uh, and piggyback on the prevalence of of screens in teenagers' hands. So those apps, to give our listeners 
a list to try and avoid, yeah. uh, things like social well, media. It, yeah, but but particularly, I mean, there are certain rules rather than naming apps. Okay. Uh, you can always name examples, but let's, let's talk about what type of tool they are mm-hmm. and how they work in terms of how they manipulate our addiction systems. So for boys, apps that imitate danger. Uh, boys really, really like danger. These apps are designed to simulate danger on very, very, very high rotation. Uh, So games like Fortnite, Call of Duty, all of those sort of things that immerse you in the notion of risking your life. Those apps are very explicitly designed to imitate danger in a way that is addictive, especially to boys. It doesn't mean that girls can't be addicted to them, but especially to boys. Now, for the girls... Uh, apps that imitate something else, uh, which we find really quite rewarding. Uh, In real life, we really, really like feeling like other people like us. Mm. So uh, now in real life, that requires a fair bit of effort. (laughs) You have to go out, you have to meet people, do things that they like uh, and have them show you that they like it. It's really, really hard to do it at the kind of rotation you would need to do it at in order for it to be to transition from merely rewarding to addictive. But social media that rewards you instantaneously with hundreds of likes for photos that you post or videos that you post is a high-speed simulation of exactly that process. And it is designed explicitly to addict young females who are the most susceptible people to that. So can you explain to us what is happening in our brain for those apps and you mentioned danger and approval for that kind of experience to be addictive for our teens? So we are wired to find approval and danger rewarding, uh, respectively, for males and females. I could go into a lot of boring detail around why it's different for males and females, Just, but for the moment, let's just accept that unless you want to drill in on it. Um, and in particular, so we are designed for that to be rewarding so that we keep doing it. Uh, we want people to keep getting on with each other, to keep liking other people, to keep working together for their approval. So it's a very pro-evolutionary, pro-survival aspect of human nature. And now, while it's merely rewarding, that's terrific. But once you transition it into addiction, and how you do that is significantly increase the amount of dopamine produced. And the only way you can really do that is to increase the, the speed of access to it. So in real life, going out, meeting people, having them approve of what you're doing, liking what you're doing, that's all very rewarding. But boy, you're going to be struggling to do it more than once or twice a day. If you can, however, simulate that at high speed and have it be done hundreds or thousands of times a day, uh, then you turn reward into addiction. The same thing goes for danger. Very, very hard to put your life at risk with the kind of frequency required to turn rewarding danger into addictive danger. But a simulation, a high-speed simulation in the form of a computer game like Fortnite, manages to achieve that. Now, we have other simulations, which we're probably a little bit more familiar with. Um, Sexual porn is a simulation of sex. Once again, sex is not something that you can have, you know, every minute of every day, but watching porn is something that you could, particularly now, that you have a device in your pocket 24 hours a day that allows you to do it. But by watching these multiple rewards, whether it's danger or approval, we're triggering a, an actual response in our brain. Can you explain that? Yes. So what happens is when 
when we anticipate uh, a reward, we produce a very large spike of something called dopamine. Now, dopamine is our sharpen up, get ready for reward drug. Uh, it, it, it makes us think clearer. It makes our muscles work faster. It makes us anticipate reward. And it also puts us in a sort of an anxious state, getting ready to be rewarded. Once we receive the reward, the dopamine dials down um, and the serotonin, which is the reward, um, dials up. And so serotonin makes us feel good, uh, makes us feel terrific about the world and is the reward as far as our brain is concerned. It's what makes you feel so good after you receive the reward. In between those two phases, dopamine going up and then serotonin going up, we have a little switch called GABA, G-A-B-A, which is another uh, uh, hormone in the brain uh, which shuts down the dopamine so that the serotonin can flow. It's, it's our braking system, if you like. Yeah. Reward achieved, shut down, let the reward flow. The problem with teenagers in particular is that GABA is dialed down enormously between the ages of the commencement of puberty, around 11 or 12, and about 10 years after that. So from 11 or 12 for about 10 years, the system that would shut down the dopamine in humans has been turned off itself. And that's why during the teenage years, we are most susceptible to addiction because addiction is the non-shutting down of the dopamine. It's the continuous production of the dopamine the ramping up of the dopamine that keeps us on edge and ready for reward. When that is not shut down, we become addicted. So are you suggesting that there are that this is a deliberate decision to target our teens at a time when they are susceptible? Absolutely it is. Oh. It's so <laughs> it's see, it's so sinister to think of it that way. It's just making money. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's how they do it. it it's, yeah. it's just making money. Uh, I mean, otherwise they're insane. Who would spend billions of dollars, and it is billions of dollars, creating the world's most sophisticated social network, for example, only to give it away for free? Hmm. That's just nonsensical. Uh, there's hundreds of thousands of people out there who would happily take your app off the desk. If you don't do something to keep your app on the desktop, then you're dead. Hmm. And all those billions of dollars that you've spent are down the drain. Uh, the only way you can do that is hook up with the human reward system to make your app more addictive than the next app in the queue. And that's exactly what they do. There's a reason why these programmers are called dopamine hackers. It's because that is their job, to know everything that I've just said and hook up to the human reward system and make sure that their audience remains addictive. They are not selling the app. They are selling your attention to the app. And the only way they keep your attention is keep you addicted. When you say it like that, I feel it makes me a bit sick in the stomach, I must say. And also what I am sickened by frequently, and I know every parent has seen this in their child, is their reaction when you remove the device and the tantrums and the crying and the manipulation and the deals that they're trying to do. Is that an addicted person trying yeah. to get their hit? Yeah, absolutely. I'll try try a different experiment. Try taking broccoli away from them. <laughs> um, and, and, and see what happens. Now, broccoli is not particularly addictive to most people. It's certainly not for me. And if someone tried to take my broccoli away, I'd let them help, have it. In fact, I'd probably help them take it away. The definition of addictive is exactly the reaction you described, which is if it weren't addictive, they wouldn't care. It is only because it is addictive that you're getting that reaction. 
And that straight up, forget about all the scientific tests and definitions and everything. If you want to test if you or anyone else is addicted to something, try taking it away from them. I guarantee right now every parent listening is feeling deeply guilty and ashamed of how slack, like I'm slack. I try, I set rules, I have boundaries, but I do give but it, in. But it's not, yeah, it's not about guilt. It's about knowing it. It's, it's about knowing what's going on. And because the only way you're going to get through that tantrum, because the easy thing to do is always just to give in. I mean, I'm that parent in our household. (laughs) My wife's the tough one. I'm the one who if the kids whine and carry on enough, they'll probably get away with it. You have to, though, stand up to it and say no and mean it. And I have found that knowing what is actually going on in their brain makes that a lot easier. Mm. Certainly I do feel empowered by that knowledge and, and and now I have a reason to stand firm. I feel like I'll do better at it. But is it as – I mean, that's just the simple truth of it, isn't it, that it's really about setting a rule and not ever backing down on it. It's about our backbone. Well, it is. Yeah, and, and the longer you – the, the more you say, the more often you say no and demean it, the easier it is. Um, because like any addiction, this goes away. There's a biomechanical switch being reset in their brain and it takes about three months to be reset to zero. So three months of no exposure to anything addictive and the dopamine switch that's holding the addiction in place is reset to zero. So it, And every day that you can hold out against an addiction the better off you are in terms of its hold on you. So it's a very simple method of withdrawal, which applies to any form of addiction. Now, some really strong forms of addiction, you need drugs to help you do that. But any addiction works the same way. You break an addiction by stopping doing the addictive behaviour or taking the addictive substance. And the longer you do that, the more successful you will be. So practically speaking, what do you do in your house? You've got six kids. How do you manage uh, what I'm sure is an endless request for screen time and these sorts of apps? It's not made easier by the fact that schools require them to have the devices. Mm. Um, that, that does not make it easier. During the holidays, it is easy. We, we lock them up during school holidays and, and they're never seen again until the start of school because there's no excuse for having them. But during school time, they actually do need them. And then it requires full-time policing. Mm. What we require is that the device has to be used in a public area where anyone can see what's on the screen at any time. Even that's hard to police because these devices are by definition portable. I mean, that's Mm. what makes them so dangerous. But you should have an absolute rule, at least we have an absolute rule, no devices in bedrooms ever, all use in a public place. Now, when I've given talks to to groups of parents, one parent said to me, he was quite smart about it, he's actually turned the Wi-Fi off in his house, but put a, a, a cable connection to the internet in the living room so that in order to use the internet, the kids actually have to connect to the cable. And he said that's made it a lot easier to police that. Not all of us are that computer savvy, but <laughs> um, that's one possible solution. Also, though, uh, you, you alert us to the fact that the schools are handing out, you know, laptops and we ne- they need them for their work. Yes. Does that then mean that there is some safe screen use? For instance... You know, watching YouTube, watching movies on your screen or things that aren't related to danger and approval. 
Uh, well, most screen use is safe. Uh, no one's getting addicted to Excel, as far as I know, um, <laughs> and, or even PowerPoint. Um, so most screen use, legitimate screen use for a school is safe. Mm. That's why I, I sort of objected to the use of the word screen time. I think okay. screen time is overused. There's nothing inherently dangerous about a screen. It's just these little para parasitic piggyback apps uh, that are put in there to addict children that you've got to be wary of. Uh, so most screen time is fine. And in terms of viewing things like YouTube and so on, um, I, I wouldn't say that they're absolutely safe. YouTube is just as guilty of manipulating dopamine as anyone else is. Um, you know, the difference between YouTube and television is when you watch television, it's not watching you. Um, whereas when you watch YouTube, it's very definitely watching you. It knows what you watch, how long you've watched it, what volume you had it at when you looked away, if, you looked, if you're watching it on your phone, um, and every other thing you've ever watched in your entire life. And it's using all of that information to not only advertise to you, but to decide what you see next. Um, so uh, YouTube is not necessarily a, 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 a non-addictive application. It is very much designed for that. Uh, but things where you are simply absorbing a broadcast of, of some description, like, say, watching television, they try their hardest to be addictive, bless their little cotton socks, mm -hmm. but, you know, a cliffhanger at the end of Neighbours just isn't on the same scale as a lot of the more modern devices used in these games and, and, and video viewing. What do you do about your kids uh, needing a phone just so that they're safe going to and from school? Our kids have phones. Uh, they're flip phones. Uh, so their only useful function is making and receiving telephone calls. That's fine by us. They're very, very, very cheap, uh, which is a really good thing because they get lost a lot. Uh, <laughs> kids could not care less about a phone that doesn't do anything but make or receive telephone calls. It's probably the least used app on any normal phone. They do have phones in case of emergency. Uh, you can't rely on the public phone network, and, and we don't. But their phones are not capable of doing anything else. I've discussed this with a lot of my friends over the weekend. An argument I hear all the time, which I'm sure you have too, is if my child is not on that particular app, then that child is going to be bullied, ostracised, is not going to connect with their friends. I particularly have an only child. She has no siblings. So for me, her connection with her friends outside of the home is very much via FaceTime and, and other kinds of, um, you know, apps that they share. So what's your response to that particular question, which I've heard a lot? What about my child being bullied? Because they're not actually connected yeah, so, to the same things that their friends yeah, are. So in, in relation to bullying, um, there's, there's often a lot of fuss made about cyberbullying, but when you look at the research on bullying, what, what becomes absolutely clear, and I lay this out in full in the book, um, is that the amount of bullying has not changed. The method of delivery has changed in that the devices are increasingly used instead of in-person bullying, but the amount of bullying hasn't changed. And the same goes for most social interactions as between kids, um, which is... They are who they are going to be, whether there's a device involved or not. If they're not on the device, they'll interact with people in real life. Uh, our kids don't have the ability to interact, um, you know, and, and chat every five seconds about the latest and greatest whatever has been shown on Instagram or, or Snapchat. Um, but if it's really news, they find out about it at the next day at school. Um, 
the reality is, and, and you might have wondered in reading the book why I went into such a lot of detail about uh, teenage hierarchies of, you know, who's at the top, top and who's at the bottom and who's in between and, and, and the degree of mobility. It's because the, the research shows that that's going to happen whether there are devices involved or not. Changing the method of communication doesn't change the social hierarchy. It just changes the method of communication. Right. So any fear that my child is going to get to school and have missed out on, you know, some kind of crucial interaction that all of her friends were doing the night before, that's unfounded. They'll get the summary. Mm. (laughs) What you'll find is, yeah, they didn't see the, you know, 40,000 messages where, you know, the blows were exchanged, but they'll get the summary, which is, you know, Jasmine doesn't like Philip or (laughs) whatever it is. That's they'll get the summary, uh, but they won't get the intrigue of of every second by second um, transaction there. And have they really missed out on anything? Probably not. Mm. Do you think it's helpful to explain all of this to your kids? Have you have you mapped out for them why the apps are so addictive for them particularly? Yes. So I think it's really important to explain, uh, particularly to teenage kids, uh, what is going on. They. They are capable of understanding how their brain works. They want to know how their brain works. I mean, in in fact, during those years, those 10 years, our brain is in its most curious and most acquisitive state it'll ever be. The bad news is that you are, life is essentially over as far as your brain's concerned by the time you hit your Um, (laughs) mid-20s. You've learned everything you're going to learn. That acquisitive phase, they want to know. And, And I have found that all of my kids, unlike every other book I've written, I mean, this is the 10th book I've written, and and most of my kids have shown no interest in any of the rest. This book, they do actually read, uh, and mostly because they want to understand. I think we all want to make a difference for our kids as far as their use of screen and addictive apps. In summary, what would you tell them to empower them in this? Don't just say no. No, no is, is, is just a formula for pushback in a teenager. You, you've got to take them on, on this journey with them. You've got to help them understand what is going on, how they are being manipulated and how they are being exploited. And once they know that, they are much more better equipped to deal with it themselves they can then stand back from themselves and say, you know what, this is getting a little unhealthy. You know, I've had some of my kids say to me, I can see that I'm spending too much time on this now. I can see that it's making me do it even though I don't have time to do it. Bring them along with you. Just saying no will just get a fight. I'm not saying it will be fight-free anyway. I'm just saying that you'll get a lot further if you explain why you're doing it. It would be helpful, I suppose, to start this right from the beginning. You know, it's it's always frightening when you see four four and five year olds on their parents' phones at the you know at the shops or whatever, uh, and we're all guilty of it. But you know, that's a time at which you want to you don't want to introduce it there, do you? No, well, I mean, and that's why the extensive section on parenting in styles, the history of parenting styles in the book, mm. which is we have transitioned to a style now where parents are more often than not not prepared to say no. Um, they are prepared to give an electronic pacifier in the form of an iPad rather than simply say no, experience the tantrum and get over it. What I'm trying to point out is that it is much easier to say no to a two-year-old and get them used to the concept that you are the one saying no and you mean it than to try doing that with a 14-year-old. You know, if the first time they hear no out of your mouth, 
is when they're 14 years of age, expect a very big problem. Right. Well, my daughter's 11. I've got three years to get it sorted. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be easier for an 11-year-old than it will be for a 14-year-old. But, uh, you know, it's about getting them used to not. Okay. Well, thank you so much, David. I'm going to go and practice my nose and stay stay as strong and firm as possible. Uh, It's been a pleasure. That was David Gillespie, author of Teen Brain. Oh, I feel so overwhelmed and, as always, guilty about how easily defeated I am by my daughter's screen use. I don't know if I have the resolve to say no constantly, but equally I'm terrified of her becoming addicted to social media approval. And I hate that she wastes so much time that could be used exploring her brilliant creativity. I guess I just have to learn to say no more. But how? I wonder if there's an app to help me with that. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or someone you think might enjoy it. And we'd love to hear about your parenting experiences, the wins and the fails. Jump onto my Instagram at Real Joe Stanley and get in touch. Thanks to Red Energy for supporting this podcast. Red Energy has great value electricity and gas that goes beyond price. Call 131 806 today. This podcast is supported by Red Energy, powered by the mighty Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Red is 100% Australian-owned and local. Phone 131 806. If you enjoyed Mum Plus One with Joe Stanley, then check out the other podcasts in the Red Energy Lifestyle Series. For all things home design, enjoy Home Style with Shana Blades. Getting the balance of large open spaces is about creating zones within one space and making them feel intimate within that space. Great value electricity and gas. That's Red Energy. Thanks for listening to Mum Plus One with Joe Stanley, part of Red Energy's podcast lifestyle series. Available on your favourite podcast platform and the SEN app.